Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for our time tonight. We thank you for giving us the privilege to be here together, to think about what you have prepared for us, to remember all that we must remember concerning our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that in him there is salvation. And so, Lord, we ask you to attend to our time, that you would give us understanding and allow us to be equipped for a greater glory and honor of your name as we adorn the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was thinking about that song as Misty was playing, No Other Name Has the Power to Save but Jesus Christ our Lord. That really is the essence of what we are going to be looking at tonight, so please take your Bibles and... Turn in them to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we are going to begin tonight to focus our attention on verses 17 to 30. And I want to read them for us just to have the whole narrative in our minds. And then we're just simply going to deal with one thing that is taking place at the beginning in verses 17 and 18. John writes it this way, beginning in verse 16, so then... He then delivered him to them to be crucified, that is, delivered Jesus over to the decision of the Jews, really. And they took Jesus, therefore, that is the Romans, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate wrote, an inscription also, and put it on the cross. And it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And the soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part for every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. They said, therefore, to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But there were standing by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I'm not quite sure how many times I've personally read or 
have heard the words of the four Gospels as they account what took place with Jesus Christ when He was crucified. I'm not sure how many times you, as you're sitting here tonight, as I read those, have heard the words of the Gospel writers as they have laid out the details of Jesus' death. But I'm pretty confident there's one thing that I can be sure of. And that is that the more and more we hear of it in our ears, the easier it is for us to be desensitized to the reality of it. I remember some years ago, as those within the entertainment industry in our own country attempted to at least put on the silver screen in graphic and imagined detail, the final hours of the life of Jesus Christ. I remember seeing those scenes and I remember leaving the movie in a, in a sense of jaw-dropping heaviness in my soul. And that all being from just a version of what took place, a made-up version of what possibly happened to Jesus Christ. And even with that, we get desensitized to it. Why? Well, simply because we, at least here in the West, at least we here in the advent of the video image age in which we live, we see forms of violence all the time. Right? You go out to eat with your family, you go to a restaurant that has numerous TVs within the restaurant, whatever location is there, and there's an endless barrage of violent scenes that come throughout the world or they're blazed before you on every TV screen. They are streaming in front of your eyes as your food is delivered to the table. There's no separation. There's no difference. But as I was thinking about it, even though it's easy for us to be desensitized about these kinds of things, we cannot allow ourselves to think that way about Jesus Christ because His suffering was real. It was the result of both a Jewish and a Roman trial, and it ended in the greatest injustice that humanity could ever have perpetuated upon another human. The result of it all was nothing less than murder. That's what it was. The one who was found to be innocent is nonetheless sentenced to die. All because, ironically and Miraculously, all because God's justice was to prevail in the punishment of sin in Christ so that on the basis of faith in Christ, He could save those who would believe. Jesus suffered in so many, many ways during those final hours. And while it's not my intent, at least here tonight, to dwell on the extent of it at this juncture, I do believe it's good for us to be reminded of how terrible crucifixion was. Commentator William Barclay gives a 
apt description of crucifixion. He says this, quote, Even the Romans themselves regarded crucifixion with a shudder of horror. Cicero declared that it was, quote, the most cruel and horrifying death, unquote. Tacitus said that it was a, quote, despicable death, unquote. Crucifixion was originally a Persian method of execution. It may have been used because to the Persians the earth was sacred and they wished to avoid defiling it with the body of a criminal and an evildoer. And so they nailed him to a cross and left him to die there and then left the vultures and the carrion crows to complete the work. The Carthaginians took over crucifixion from the Persians and the Romans learned it from the Carthaginians. Crucifixion was never used as a method of execution in Italy, by the way. It was only used in the outcry or outlying uh, provinces and there only in the case of slaves. It was unthinkable that a Roman citizen should die by such a death. In fact, Cicero said, quote, It is a crime for a Roman citizen to be bound. It is a worse crime for him to be beaten. It is well nigh parricide, which is simply the killing of someone's relative. So it's like killing your own father, your own mother, your own uncle, for him to be killed. What I am to say, what am I to say if he be killed on a cross? A nefarious action such as that is incapable of description by any word, for there is none fit to describe it. This was the Roman emperor. It was that death, the most dreaded death in the ancient world, Barclay says, the death of slaves and criminals that Jesus died. Unquote. Crucifixion was brutal to say the least. In fact, we know from Scripture and from history, after the accused was sentenced to die, they would first be taken to be scourged. Of course, in the account of Jesus Christ, he was scourged ever before he was sentenced in order to kind of placate some kind of sick sympathy in the crowd that was there, the mob mentality of the Jews. And by the way, most of the time that an individual was scourged, they didn't live through it. That in and of itself killed them. So the intent of the scourging was to both humiliate the prisoner and to rip the torso of the person apart by slashing them with pieces of metal and pieces of bone that are attached to ribbons of leather that were swung at the person's back. And of course, there would be massive blood loss. There would be constant muscle cramping. And if the person lived through the scourging, then they would take them and the horizontal part of the cross, which they were to be hung on, was tied to their neck and shoulders. Once that was done, then they were paraded toward the place of crucifixion through the city. 
Normally, the route for the crucifixion was the longest route. They took them the longest way so that others could both mock them and that others who saw it could be deterred from doing the same kind of crime. So the processional would go through the city and a group, as we read here in John chapter 19, a group of four soldiers were usually the ones who carried out the action around the one who was going to be crucified. They were led by a centurion. The lead soldier would have been carrying some kind of placard describing for the people the crime for which this person was being charged and for which they were being killed. And of course, once they arrived at the place of crucifixion, they would strip them of their outer clothing. Oftentimes, it would have been all of their clothing, not just their outer clothing, but their outer and their inner clothing. And this clothing became the property of the soldiers. And then they would hoist the crossbeam up so that it would rest upon the vertical beam that was already in the ground. We know from history and we know from reading even here in the Gospels that the hands were nailed to the beam. Some historians and some medical people say it was most likely through the main nerve on the wrist that most crucifixions took place. So somewhere right in here on the wrist, which would continually send pain throughout your body. And then, of course, the feet also would have been nailed to the cross with the knees slightly bent, the feet under a, a piece of uh, wood that would have been nailed to the cross to give the knees a slight bending to them so that the condemned, once nailed to the cross, could, because of the pain going on, could raise themselves a little bit to get a little bit of relief from the pain of, of potential suffocation from their arms being nailed to the cross and the body weight dragging down upon them. And they would be able to give themselves some sense of relief as they pushed against their feet and legs to get up off the cross and gain some short breath only to sink down again because of the excruciating pain in their feet and legs. It would only be after hours, and in some cases even days, in some kinds of crucifixion, that the punishment would do what it was needed to do. The condemned would die probably of suffocation and loss of blood, having been in shock throughout the whole point. Just those few details alone can begin to give us a glimpse into the horror that Christ went through for us. Just that. Just that alone. And yet, even through all of that, through the physical agony and pain, through all of that, all of that pain pale in comparison to the misery that Jesus Christ endured when the penalty of our sin was poured upon Him and the resulting separation from the Father took place. It was horrific. So horrific, in fact, that Jesus cried out. The other gospel writers tell us, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in all of this, we see the divine essence of love. 
When the Bible says we are to love as Christ loved, that picture ought to be in our minds. This is the divine essence of love. C.S. Lewis put it this way, quote, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be so that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein lies love. This is the diagram of love himself, the, the inventor of all loves, unquote. I love how he says that. God is the host who deliberately creates his own parasites and causes us to be so that we might exploit and take advantage of him. It is this that you and I must stow deep in our minds. It's this that we must have in our hearts, folks. Because that is where we see the divine expression of love. Notice, notice what John says to us here in verses 17 and 18. They took Jesus, therefore, and went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in, is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Did you notice Jesus was not the only one that died that day? Did you notice that? He was accompanied by the death of two thieves. We don't get those details from John. But we get them from the other Gospels and we get them from history. Apparently, according to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 27, these two men had been found guilty of robbery. They were robbers. Matthew 27, verse 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Well, it's very convenient for us in the West and us in the 20th century to think about robbers because we think, oh, that's a very simple thing. But robbery isn't what we may think in our minds. I've mentioned it before as we've been looking at this passage, particularly when we thought about Barabbas because Barabbas was a robber. Verse 40 of chapter 18, Therefore they cried out again, saying, Not this man, that is not Jesus, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. That's just not some indication as to, oh yeah, this guy was a criminal too. That's an indication as to what kind of criminal Barabbas actually was. Barabbas was not just a robber. The word there carries the idea of an insurrectionist. One who goes against those who are ruling over him, not just somebody who steals something. In a word, he was a terrorist. So here is Jesus being tried and found guilty and being crucified with two who were against the rulership that were over them. They were terrorists. They were just like Barabbas. 
course, Barabbas has already been set free to roam around the earth again to exercise his sinfulness as he sees fit on the basis that Jesus was sentenced in his place. What an irony. Jesus Christ was a substitute for Barabbas. Not a substitute in a salvation kind of way, but a substitute all the same. Jesus Christ was sentenced and Barabbas was set free. And so here again is Jesus, now nailed to a cross between two insurrectionists who themselves have been nailed to their own crosses. Physical pain would have been just as great for them. The other gospel writers tell us that in their, in their agony, in their pain, as they're hanging on the cross, they lashed out, they cursed the very day they were born. As they were cursing other people, surely in their own cries they were saying, I wish I had never, ever been born. So here's Jesus. Placed between two convicted criminals as if he's the worst. And yet, instead of being a disgrace, what we see here is the fulfillment of what God said must happen. Isaiah 53, verse 12. He would be numbered with the transgressors. He would be numbered with the transgressors. Here is Jesus Christ numbered with the transgressors. And the other gospel writers tell us that these robbers, these thieves, began to hurl insults at Jesus after listening to the chief priests and all those who were wandering by hurl insults at Jesus and mock Him. In fact, Matthew 27 and verse 44 says that they heaped insults at Him. Luke 23, verse 39 says that they said, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. That's what the thieves said. It's amazing. John doesn't record it for us here, but something miraculous happened at that moment. Here is Jesus Christ nailed to the cross, suffering all the physical pain of reality, knowing what is to come, the separation from Him and His Father in that miraculous transaction that takes place while God judges sin on His perfect Son. And there's a separation of, in, a, in a spiritual way that you and I cannot fathom that Christ would sense and feel the anguish of that even more than the physical pain and more than the pain of carrying our sin to the very end. And here he is sitting between these two thieves who say, aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And John doesn't say it, but something miraculous happened right at that moment. God, because of his grace and mercy, began to work in the heart of one of the criminals. God, who didn't need to do it, decided to work and had decided it before time ever began, before the foundation of the world, he began to work in the heart of one of the criminals. And the criminals' hurling of insults began to get quiet. 
his mind begins to be renewed. And he begins to understand the truth about himself and about Jesus Christ. A moment before, he's cursing Jesus. A moment before, he's hurling insults at Jesus. A moment before, he's hearing the insults given to Jesus by those who are standing by, by the chief priests and the rulers who had led Jesus Christ to the very cross that he's crucified on. A moment before, he's joining in with the crowd. And now, and now he's turning to the other criminal. He's turning to his cohort in crime and he's rebuking him for all of the wickedness that he now understands about himself. Listen to what it says. Luke chapter 23, verse 40 and 41. Listen to what it says. But the other answered, that is the other criminal, answered and rebuking him said, he's speaking to the criminal who's hurling insults, do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. The seconds before, he's saying, aren't you the Messiah? Can't you save yourself and us? And now, he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you Come in your kingdom. A miracle. That's a miracle. What did Jesus say to him? Did Jesus say, Sorry, pal. Sorry, buddy. You had your chance. I mean, after all, I've walked the earth for three years. I've been here for quite some time, going throughout the country, from the south to the north. Here I am. You could have believed in me, but it's too late now. Then he said to him, well, okay, I sure hope we can get out of this predicament we're in. If by some means we happen to get down, I'll see if I can do something for you. Did he say that? No. No, Jesus didn't say that. What did he say? Luke 23, verse 43. I tell you the truth. I love that. Jesus always speaks the truth. I tell you the truth. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Miracle. Miracle of all miracles. Sitting on the cross. Oh, wait a minute, the guy didn't get baptized. He can't go to heaven, he's not been baptized. Baptized doesn't save anybody. He was baptized, he was baptized into Christ. Several years ago, I was pastoring in Ohio, and the church that I pastored was a church that at one time was able to sit for a brief moment under the preaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse was an American theologian and preacher who pastored most of his years, 1927, no, 37, I think, 1937 to 1960. 
in 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And I was reading about him and came across an encounter that he had with a man while he was pastoring in New York. He did a brief stint in New York. And apparently he had quite a following and they were putting him on the radio or at least transmitting his sermons from somewhere in Boston. And apparently this person that wanted to see him was a captain, the captain of the largest passenger ship at the time. The Mauritania was the ship. And he had often heard Dr. Barnhouse preach as he sailed from the North Atlantic down to the South. And so on one trip south, he's going to be in New York for 24 hours, and he decides to go and to see if Dr. Barnhouse was there, if he could see him. So on that day, he shows up at the church, and the custodian of the church comes to the door, and and this man says, I'd like to see Dr. Barnhouse. So the custodian goes and tells Dr. Barnhouse, there's a man there to see him, and so he went down to see the man. The captain said to Dr. Barnhouse, you have a beautiful church here. Barnhouse thanked him. And apparently, Barnhouse was a pretty upfront and bold person. And he said to the man, sir, have you been born again? The man said, well, that's why I came to see you. So Barnhouse stepped into one of the meeting rooms at the church, apparently, and on the blackboard, he drew three crosses. And he said, let me put it to you very simply, sir. He said, when Jesus died on the cross, there was a thief on either side, and each one was a sinner. Each one had sin in him. And when he said the word in, Barnhouse went over to the cross and he wrote above the two crosses to the right and left of the one in the middle, he wrote in. He wrote that under both of those crosses that represented the thieves. And under the center cross, he wrote not in, not in. And he said, this man did not have sin in him. Jesus Christ was the spotless Lamb of God, he said. And then he said, pointing to the crosses of the two thieves, the one on each side, he said, these men not only had sin in them, but they had sin on them. And he wrote over the top of both those crosses, on. So underneath he had in, and on the, above the top he had on. As the story goes, the man captain of that ship was kind of puzzled by that reference and so Barnhouse said let me show you the difference between sin on you and sin in you and he said do you drive a car the man said yes he said have you gone through a red light the man said yes he said were you guilty yes yes I was did the police catch you he said, no, they didn't. He said, but you had sin in you, didn't you? And if the police had been there and had given you a ticket, then you would have had sin on you as well. He said, that's the difference between having sin in you and having sin on you. All of us have sin in us, he said. We are all guilty but also, all of us have sin 
on us. We are under God's judgment. The first thief had sin in him. And he had sin on him. The second thief had sin in him. And he had sin on him. They were exactly alike. And then Barnhouse wrote the word on over the cross of Christ. And he said Christ also had sin on him. But he did not have sin in him. The sin which is on him is not his sin. He said, it's my sin and it's the sin of the thief that's hanging there on the cross. Then Barnhouse took that piece of chalk and he turned it sideways and he laid it on the top of the, the word on, on top of one of the crosses on the side of the one in the middle and he rubbed the chalk over the word on down through the cross of the thief and drew an arrow to the cross of Christ and said, God justified this thief by putting all the guilt of his sin over onto Jesus Christ. And Barnhouse went on to say, Christianity is this. The perfect Christ came and died on the cross And there are two kinds of people represented in these two thieves. Both are alike. Both have sin in them and both have sin on them. But in the one case, the sin that was on him is now on Christ. You are either like the one or you're like the other. Apparently the captain of the ship was a pretty tall guy and he wasn't one that was easily given to emotions but he was certainly moved by what he had heard and he pointed to the cross of the repentant thief and he said, quote, by God's grace, by faith, I'm like this thief, unquote. Jesus Christ is crucified and yet in the midst of the crucifixion is this miracle of the birth. The miracle of God taking the sin of one and vividly showing us exactly our story. That's our story. The sin that was on us, Christ It has become on Christ. And you think about the thief and you think about the miracle of birth. uh, There's at least three things that it reveals which took place with that thief that day. And the same three things that have taken place with us if we know Jesus Christ. One is this. That the thief recognized his need. The thief recognized his need. It wasn't a physical need that he had, but it was a spiritual need that he had. 
John doesn't tell us anything about the thief. He even calls it just two other men. And yet we know from the other Gospels, these were not just simply men. These were criminals. These were guilty men. This is us. This is us with sin not only on us, but sin in us. And we must recognize our need. This is what Jesus is, this is what John is showing us. This is what the other gospel writers are showing us. This is the reality of us. We are there. Christ is crucified and we are hanging there with Christ. We are paying the penalty of our sin until Christ takes that penalty. This, this crucified robber recognized that he was a sinner, recognized that he needed a Savior. We can hear, we can hear it in his words. We can hear it in his words to the other thief. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence? We're punished justly for we are getting what we deserve. We deserve punishment from God. We need a Savior. We deserve it because of our sin. We have a spiritual need. Secondly, he recognized that Jesus is that Savior. Jesus is the Savior. I'm not implying that he would have been able to tell us all of the nuances about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. I'm not saying that he would have understand all the details of what that means and how salvation works. I'm simply saying that he's just like the blind man in John chapter 9 who said to the religious leaders of that day when they were questioning how he became able to see. He said, listen, I don't know all those details. You tell me how it's done. All I know is this. I was blind and now I see and Jesus is the one that did it. thief on the cross was just like that. He recognized that Jesus was the innocent one. Jesus was the unguilty one. And he showed it by publicly saying, this man has done nothing wrong. He publicly professed Jesus Christ. I've done something wrong, but he's done nothing wrong. I'm guilty, but he's not guilty. Remember me, Jesus, in your kingdom. He recognized his spiritual need, and he recognized Jesus as the one who could meet that need. And then lastly, he committed himself to Jesus personally. This is what he did. He said, remember me in your kingdom. It's a commitment to Jesus Christ in a personal kind of way. And you know what? Jesus remembered him. Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow, not in a week from now, not in a year from now, not maybe. But the ironclad reality, as Luke recorded, Today you will be with me in paradise. This is all I want us to focus on tonight. This is all I want us to think about. This is the only reality that I want us to to realize tonight. John says they crucified Jesus. And 
When we recognize our need for a Savior, and when we embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior, then He recognizes us in His kingdom. Why? Because He has paid for the sin that is both in us and on us. That's all I want us to remember tonight, folks. I don't want to get far into this. All I want us to remember is that you can never be too sinful or call upon Jesus so late that Jesus will not respond. You can never be so racked with sin or or so late in life that, that when you call upon Jesus Christ, He will not receive you. We gain eternal life simply like the thief. Simply by faith. By faith in Christ. As Christ was crucified, God is extending His great mercy to all those who would believe. Amazing words. Doesn't seem all that amazing, but they are amazing words. There they crucified him. And with him, two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Jesus is the bridge between heaven and hell. Let's pray. Father, seems like we moved fast and furious tonight. Just really scratching the surface of what is going on in the theological framework of all that you have chosen to accomplish through your Son. And yet in the simplicity of the words of John and why John has put it here, he put it here that we might believe Believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we would have life in His name. I know. I know, Lord, there are some here who do not know You. There are some in this place who have not entrusted themselves to You. They do not see their need as You would have it. Oh, sure, they know there's sin in them. But for whatever reason, they don't think there's sin on them. Simply because they haven't been caught. Standing before you, we are all guilty. We all need a Savior. And I trust that you would open their eyes as you open the eyes of the thief. Recognize his need to see that you are the answer to that need. And entrust themselves to you and you alone. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for being separated for us. That we might have life in your name. Help us not to be desensitized by the reality of all that you went through so that we might have life in your name. Help us to realize the magnitude of that and embrace the richness of it so that we might live for your glory. These things we pray 
In our precious Savior's name, Jesus Christ, whom we love and we desire to see honored and glorified. All God's people said, Amen.